I feel like I need to give a disclaimer here, because as you guys know, I enjoy theology. It's a thing that I like. And uh, <laughs> my, my head is in that space a lot, okay? I'm in the, the theological realm mentally a lot. And particularly, obviously, preparing for this class, I've been in this material a lot. So I'm about to drop something on you that your head has not been in. And so uh, I'm also trying to be, you know, sensitive to the fact that this is the middle of the week. It's Wednesday evening. It is evening. Okay? Uh, that you might not be as excited about this as I am. It's kind of what I'm getting at here, okay? So I don't want to just bombard you with a bunch of information, but it might feel that way when you get this in your hands, okay? This is only three copies. No, I'm just kidding. There's more. Than three. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but there's just a lot here that I'm going to hand you. And so don't feel overwhelmed by it as though we are going to uh, cover all of this tonight. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. This class was not built in a day. And so we're going to be going through this material slowly over the next few weeks. To remind you where we've been in this class, we're 15 weeks in. First five weeks, we covered hermeneutics. And what is hermeneutics? What does that have to do with? Good, yeah. The study of Scripture, how we interpret the Bible, okay? Five weeks on that. And it's very, very, very important we started there. Then the, for the last 10 weeks, two and a half months, we've been talking about the covenants of the Bible. Okay, what three particular covenants were we focusing on? The first one? Good. Second one? Yeah. <laughs> Third one? New. All right. Very good. Now we have five weeks left in this class. You're 75% of the way through the class. In these last five weeks, we are going to be now examining covenant theology and critiquing it from a dispensational perspective. We're taking this knowledge that we've laid down over the last 15 weeks, a lot of knowledge. You guys are so stinking smart. And for the last five weeks, we're going to say, here's what another system teaches about hermeneutics and about the covenants of the Bible and a few other things. What's wrong with that? All right. So that is what we're doing. I'm Going to get these to you, if someone wants to help me hand these out. Thanks, Tyler. I think there's, there should be enough for one for everybody, but if you can do one per household, let's do one per household. And we are going to uh, <clears throat> see how far we get in this this evening, and uh, want to make sure that we go slow enough to answer your questions, but we go fast enough so as to not drag this out for the next several months. We do have a schedule we'd like to stick to, but uh, we also want to make sure that you're taken care of with any questions that you may have, okay? You may notice I gave this a very Puritan-like title at the top. This was supposed to be my attempt at humor. An examination of covenant theology distinctives with critique or a biblical and philosophical dispensational response to reform theological claims of soteriological and ecclesiological nature as articulated in the latter second and early third millennia A.D., and the crowd goes wild. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, that's about as funny as this document gets. So if that didn't tickle your funny bone, uh, it's not going to get any more entertaining from there. All right. But uh, tonight we will get into this. I would like to give a sweeping overview of some of these things. And then in the uh, weeks that follow, we'll examine things a little bit more closely. 
Let me go ahead and pray, and then we will start talking about these things, all right? Father, we thank you so much for this time together this evening. We ask that you would help us to think through these things clearly, that we would uh, just slow down where we need to slow down and examine things carefully, that we would be biblical in all that we're thinking and saying tonight, that we would honor you with this time together. Help us to feel more firmly grounded in our understanding of what you're doing in the world and where this is all headed. Help us to uh, just grow together in our theological study, that we would be unified as a church in this, and that we would, again, just feel, feel confident about knowing what it is that you've said. Lord, help us in these ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as in this class, we've started with hermeneutics and covenants of the Bible. We uh, start on this sheet with hermeneutics and covenants. Now, just to refresh you, covenant theology is a, a system a theological system that covers a bunch of stuff. Sometimes people will think that uh, when we talk about theological systems like this, it mostly has to do with eschatology, that we're just going to be talking about end times. But that's actually really not the case. Only a third of this table that I've given you covers eschatology. Uh, The rest has to do with the nature of how we read the Bible, the nature of how we interpret the covenants God has made, the nature of the church, the nature of Israel. All of that feeds into our view of the end times, but that the view of the end times isn't like where we start with this, okay? We actually have to start with hermeneutics, okay? What we have been teaching you over the last 15 weeks is the dispensational view of hermeneutics and the covenants of the Bible. So what we're going to do now is present to you the alternative position and remind you of why we don't take that position. So let's start here with the definition of hermeneutics from a covenant theology perspective. This column that says definition is giving you the perspective of covenant theology, all right? So hermeneutics, covenant theology uses different hermeneutics for the Old Testament and the New Testament. After interpreting the New Testament normally, theological theological conclusions from there are projected onto Old Testament prophecies to bring out hidden spiritual meanings unknown to the Old Testament's authors. This method is sometimes called New Testament priority hermeneutics, or census plenier or fuller meaning hermeneutics. Opposed to that, here in the next box, is the the critique from my perspective here and the perspective of this church's doctrinal statement. It says, to grasp the Bible's storyline, Scripture should be read progressively. And theology should be developed following progressive revelation using one hermeneutic. Covenant theology must abandon normal interpretation of the Old Testament to comport with their system. This approach does not allow the Old Testament to mean what it says. Thus, it fundamentally alters the trajectory of God's revealed program for Israel as declared through the Old Testament prophets. Right, so that's a lot of words there. But uh, I'll give you uh, just a a few other ways to think about it here and then see if you have any thoughts or questions to share. So when we were going through our approach to interpreting the Bible, talking about hermeneutics, we started off by talking about the qualities that the Bible possesses. We talked about the authority of the Bible, of course. The Bible is authoritative in all that it says. It is your boss, right? Because this is the Word of God. Well, the Bible's authoritative. We talked about how the Bible is also clear. 
When you read through the Bible, you are able to understand its message. The Bible has a clarity about it. In, uh, say, you were in Old Testament times during the prophet Isaiah's time as prophet in Israel. As an Israelite receiving the message of God through the prophet Isaiah, you would be able to understand his message. That's like the whole point of God communicating, right? Is that we'd understand what he has to say? Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that we would know every single detail about everything. All these prophecies that were made, for example, play out over time. Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah who was to come, that's a pretty potent passage of the Bible where it talks about this one is going to come and suffer for us. He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That's a pretty amazing passage. But we have to admit, of course, on this side of the cross, we have a more colorful picture of what that looked like as it played out through history. However, if you were alive during Isaiah's day and you received that prophecy from God through his prophet, you would be able to understand that this was going to take place, that this is something that that God had planned, that there would be a Messiah, the one to come, who would suffer in the place of the people. We obviously know his name. We know at what time he came, and we know how he suffered and died. They didn't know any of those things, but they were able to understand the message that they had at the time. Well, um, that means we, we believe the Bible's clear, and we can approach it with this perspective of it means what it says. All right, that's the whole point of me using that example. The Bible means what it says. Well, if you're coming from a covenant theology perspective, there are several places in the Old Testament that the Bible cannot mean what it says. For instance, in Ezekiel uh, 40 to 48, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, and this is one of the most famous places where there's a disagreement, Ezekiel talks about a new temple that will be built. God is showing him a new temple that's going to be constructed in Jerusalem and sacrifices that are going to take place in the temple and Israel coming back into the land and dividing the land and the tribes being in their land. Well, from a covenant theology perspective, that's not actually going to happen. That that prophecy, as it is laid out, is all an allegory or a metaphor of something else. When he's talking about a temple that measured yay this way and yay that way and looks like this and these priests are going to come in and perform these sacrifices and all that, that's all a a metaphor of something else entirely. So what they're doing is going to the New Testament first, seeing Christ's death and the establishment of the church as the fulfillment of all things and saying that's what Ezekiel was talking about. Ezekiel was actually talking about Christ. Ezekiel was talking about the church. And they're using a literal hermeneutic in the New Testament to see there was an actual Christ and Christ actually died. It means what it says. But then going back to a passage like that in the Old Testament and saying, but Ezekiel did not mean what he said. Or maybe he meant it, but God actually had a different plan in mind. And God's actual meaning wasn't that there'd be an actual temple again or that Israel would actually go back to their land and divide it up again. But it's all just a metaphor for how God is going to save His people. And that played out in a very different way than what they anticipated. So that's a fundamental disagreement that we have with hermeneutics, where you have one side, we'll say us, saying, Ezekiel means what he says, there's going to be another temple. There are going to be sacrifices in that temple. Israel's going to be back in the land. The tribes are going to divide the land. And the other side saying, no, 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 no. All things are being 
fulfilled right now in Christ, in the church. So God won't go back to Israel anymore. God's not going to go back to land anymore. All that's done. That was just a metaphor for the present time, or that's a metaphor for the the summing up of all things in Christ. So those are pretty big differences to the Bible, aren't they? Different approaches approaches to the Bible. You can imagine how if, uh, say, there were a couple of pastors in a church who held to those views, if they were teaching through the book of Ezekiel, they'd have a hard time teaching the people, right? Because they're taking two very different approaches. But that's just one example of where that difference lies. So thoughts or questions on hermeneutics there and what the differences are? Melissa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I would say, I don't have a stat on this, but the majority of Reformed theologians, Covenant theologians, would see that there would be a mass salvation of Israel at the end, before the second coming, because of Romans 11. Not because of the Old Testament, but because of Romans 11, which, of course, Paul said based on Old Testament prophecies, <laughs> you know, which is kind of a... A silly thing. It's not like Paul was going rogue and, and just making up a, a new prophecy without uh, what the Old Testament said. He was actually just repeating what the Old Testament promised. But, but it seems like the majority believe that. Now, there are some, and again, I would put them in the minority here, but probably a significant minority if it is a minority, would say, uh, no, there is no mass salvation of Israel at the end, that that's just talking about the church. It's not talking about ethnic or national Israel. Some, some. So there's a spectrum on this. Uh, some, like Augustine, he went as far uh, with his allegory to just really, um, I'll say it, just twist Scripture. Um, if I think I've shared this at some point before, but Augustine, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you guys remember hearing about this before? Uh, you know, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, how there's the, the Samaritan that comes by and actually helps the guy when all the religious leaders didn't help him. And he puts him on the, the donkey, he takes him to the hotel, you know, the whole thing. Are you remembering all the details here? Augustine went through in his commentary on that and said, everything had a symbolic meaning for something else. And I can't remember the exact correlations here, but it was something like the donkey represented Christ, and the poor man, the beggar, represented the sinner, and the sinner was put onto Christ, and the inn that they went to represented heaven. And that's how he taught that. And so even in the New, their New Testament interpretation, if they went that far... It gets pretty weird. Uh, very few are as brazen as Augustine, <laughs> trying to find hidden meanings in Jesus' parables. But they do it all the time with the Old Testament prophets. Yeah. So that allegorizing of stories in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that was, it seems, pretty rampant during Martin Luther's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Right? I mean, it's... Or, let's face it, 
Israel is going to dwell on their own land. Right. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess... Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Roman Catholic Church took a lot of what August, Augustine started before him, Origen started, kind of fed into an allegorizing of Scripture. And this is, a, it is important to think about church history, so thanks for bringing that up, Andy. Uh, the Reformation that took place was not called a restoration. It was called a Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, all these guys involved, the big names they hear, they weren't trying to say that the church had apostatized. This wasn't like a Joseph Smith thing. They weren't saying the church has disappeared from the face of the earth and now through us, God is establishing His church. That wasn't it. They wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to change the existing structure, not replace it. They wanted to change it and make it more biblical. So what you have then is this idea in Latin, semper reformanda, always reforming. Uh, Why do Presbyterians baptize babies, for example? Well, it started with the Roman Catholic Church, and that was just a part of the Reformation that didn't exist for many of them. They didn't get to the part where they needed to reform the infant baptism stuff. That was, the Roman Catholic Church was practicing it. Uh, You know, eventually you get the Anabaptists, and then you get a string of Baptists coming out of the Puritans, too, that started teaching believers' baptism. But, you know, we're saying that those guys in the Reformation, so thankful for them, there are just certain areas where they stopped short of reforming. I mean, they only had, you know, what, 70 years to live or 80 years, however old they were, and they only had one life where they could get stuff done. But subsequent generations, our job is to always be reforming, which is always become more biblical. Look for ways to be more biblical. And hermeneutics is one of those areas that just didn't get reformed enough. Okay? So, and we're, for, we're forged from the Reformation, and we need to make sure our biblical interpretive grid is uh, on point and not just something we accept from people like Augustine. Yes, Tyler. Yeah, the split really started even before that. It started back in the 2nd and 3rd century with the uh, two different schools of thought mm-hmm. in Alexandria and Antioch, and the Alexandrian school really took off with this uh, looking for a deeper spiritual meaning Yes, indeed. Yeah, very early on, you've got guys like Origen taking the Alexandrian view of there's a deeper meaning in Scripture. What it says at face value isn't enough. You've got to find the real juicy stuff under the surface. Not a good way to read the Bible, is it? How would you like me preaching that way? You guys would probably not attend this church, would you? Okay. Uh, words have meaning. That, I mean, that's really a critical part of our hermeneutic. Words have meaning from Genesis to Revelation, not just New Testament. All the words through the whole thing have meaning, and that's how we approach the Bible, okay? Well, let's look at these covenants. If you remember the covenants of the Bible in that chart I gave you before, uh, starting with the Noahic covenant, going through the New Covenant, we listed out six specific covenants that are presented in the Bible. Well, here are the three covenants of covenant theology, and you'll notice none of them were on my chart. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Where are those in the Bible? 
Well, let's examine them. Starting with the covenant of redemption. These are the three covenants of covenant theology. Covenant of redemption. In eternity past, a covenant was made between at least the Father and the Son, some also include the Spirit, agreeing to accomplish man's salvation in the world that would be created and subsequently corrupted by sin. The Father elected a people to give to the Son. The Son agreed to take the place of those whom the Father gave. In Latin, this is called the pactum salutis. I make a note of that because you'll sometimes see the Latin term used for that particular covenant. Well, our critique of that is this. Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that the Father elected a people to give to the Son, the persons of the Godhead would not need to make a covenant to establish an agreement. There is no higher rank or dubious partner that would necessitate a covenant. So, um, I have the last three pages of the handout are quotes. I want you to go to page five with me. And uh, I have a quote here from Michael Horton, pretty famous contemporary covenant theologian. And this is how he describes, in his own words, the covenant of redemption. Top of page five. It says, even in the covenant of redemption, that pact made between the persons of the Godhead and eternity, the elect were given to the Son as a reward for the obedience that He would render on their behalf in both His life and His death, as well as in His resurrection, resurrection victory over the enemies of God and His people. Even before creation and the fall, the elect were in Christ in terms of the divine purpose for history, though not yet in history itself. So that's the, the first covenant of covenant theology is that Father, Son, and most of them, I think, would say Spirit, entered into covenant with themselves. So this is not a God-human covenant. It's a God covenant between the three persons of the Trinity. Um, I will say that this is the covenant I, of their system that I have the least bit of problem with. Okay? Uh, I, I'm not like going to go to the mat on this one. But, here, but my objections are just what it says on the sheet here. Number one... We don't have this in the Bible, and that is a big deal. There are some people who would scoff at that and say, oh, you're just being a biblicist. That's the term that's being thrown around today. It's supposed to be a bad thing, but I kind of like it. Uh, You're being a biblicist. Everything has to be in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Are you going to get upset about that too? Okay. Um, Well, it doesn't have for us anywhere in Scripture this idea that Father, Son, and Spirit entered into a covenant together. And Besides it not being in the Bible, I have this logical problem with it. Because why would God need to enter into a covenant with God? I, I, like, you know, you enter into covenants with somebody like when there's a higher rank kind of thing going on. That's the Suzerian covenant of the Middle East, ancient, ancient Near East, where you have a higher ranking person entering into covenant with a lower ranking person, a king entering into covenant with the people, that sort of thing. So you have that going on, or you have two people that, you know, potentially one person could flake out, and so you enter into a covenant. You sign your lease agreement when you're renting something or whatever the case may be. That's why we enter into such covenants is because we need to be held accountable because we have a propensity to not be reliable. So what would that say about Father, Son, and Spirit if they're having to enter into a covenant with one another? I don't really understand that logic. I'll just, you know, be honest with you, unless there's something I'm missing. I don't get the logic of it. 
this should be something that there's already agreement in between Father, Son, and Spirit of one will together. So um, it to, for me, it fails on both Bible grounds and logical grounds. Okay, Mandy. In what way are you thinking? Well, because God Yeah. Yep. I, I totally think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. It's like the one will, one mind of God, but then there had to be a covenant between the persons. I just, I really don't understand that. And again, I, I say here, you know, it's true. The father elected a people to give to the son. Yes. But to advance that to the status of a covenant, when the Bible says nothing about it being a covenant, is a little bit nonsensical to me. So, Any other thoughts or questions on that one? Okay. Covenant of works. Now, this is where I start having big problems. Okay. Covenant of works. In the garden, God made a covenant with Adam, wherein it was agreed that if he maintained righteous works only, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, he would continue on to enjoy eternal life forever. The critique. Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that if Adam never sinned, he would have lived forever, this does not necessitate a covenant of works wherein eternal life is earned by man. Now, this one's really critical. If, if you lose this covenant, you really lose the whole system of covenant theology. It's pretty important, and you'll see it pop back up as we continue to examine this system. But this is the second covenant. They've got three covenants. This is the middle one, and it all kind of hinges on this one, that God made a covenant with Adam that he can earn, essentially, eternal life for himself by perpetually and perfectly maintaining personal righteous deeds forever and ever. Um, I have a tough one. I have a problem with that. It's a tough one for me to say, like, oh, boy, can people believe that? I feel like people can't believe that. That's just, that's just not right. But that's a big part of their system. Again, going back to page five, you can see some quotes from them in their own words. Let's look at a couple of those. And I love this John Frame one. You know, I could have picked any quotes I wanted, but I picked this one from John Frame, a Presbyterian. He says, I believe that the existence of a covenant, talking about the covenant of works, specifically between God and man, is implicit in Genesis 1 and 2, though there is no record of God's formally announcing it as in other covenants. Theologians have asked what would have happened if Adam had kept his, this special commandment rather than disobeying it. But strangely, this text does not explicitly mention any blessing of obedience. So John Frame says he believes in this covenant, but the Bible doesn't talk about it or talk about the blessings that come from keeping it. <laughs> I, I love John Frame, but it's like, dude, what are, you, what are you thinking? Tom Hicks says, Reformed covenant theology teaches that the New Testament shows that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden because God created Adam in His own image he was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, citing Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, which means that Adam had the work of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, imprinted on his nature. So that's going to become important for us to think about too. So don't start reading that R.C. Sproul quote at the bottom yet. Don't do that. Uh, just concentrate on those middle two. And 
Consider how Tom Hicks here says, the Ten Commandments were what Adam was to keep. That, that's really the traditional covenant theology perspective. When you think about what works was Adam given to keep, to earn eternal life for himself, it's not just don't eat of the fruit and then be fruitful and multiply. But in addition to that, traditional covenant theology says he was given the Ten Commandments because it was on his heart from creation. Okay. Same ones. Yeah, yeah, same ones. The Sinai ones, yeah. Well, you'll see as we continue along, their view of the law necessitates this view. Because they believe that the moral aspect of the law is perpetually binding from creation to consummation. And that the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Now, if that's the case, Adam had to have the Ten Commandments. There you are. Now you've arrived. So, do you think Adam had to honor his father and mother? <laughs> or remember the Sabbath day? Oh, man. I don't know about that. That's a tough one. Okay. All right. Last covenant. Go back to the first page there. Covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. This ties right into the covenant of works because obviously Adam did sin. So if there was a covenant, he broke it, right? What happens next? Covenant of grace. After the fall, God made a covenant with Adam and his progeny, providing salvation in Christ. It was progressively disclosed through other covenants. Some who hold to covenant theology say that the Noahic, Abrahamic, Old, Davidic, Priestly, and New Covenants are administrations of the singular covenant of grace. Reformed Baptists, on the other hand, say only the New Covenant should be equated with the covenant of grace. The critique is, such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that God showed Adam grace and made a promise of redemption in Genesis 3, he did not use covenantal language. Additionally, the New Testament declares that God made multiple covenants to Israel, which they still possess, rather than a singular covenant of grace. So that last sentence is uh, a critique of that specific Presbyterian view that says all of the uh, covenants that, are, that we list out in the Old Testament are just different dispensations or administrations of the covenant of grace. Well, it doesn't say in the New Testament that God made a covenant with Israel or that to Israel belongs the covenant, singular. It says God made covenants, plural, with Israel, and that to them belong the covenants, plural. So God did make plural covenants. He didn't just make the covenant of grace with Israel. He made these different covenants, and they are different. They all, they all tie together in God's program, but they're not all subsets of one supposed covenant of grace. So that is their system of three covenants, and I'll go back to... Um, I guess now we'll go to page 6 and just see some quotes on the covenant of grace and then see what thoughts or questions you have. Page 6, <clears throat> starting with the Westminster Confession of Faith, it articulates the covenant of grace this way, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners 
life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. O. Palmer Robertson says, Covenant theology understands the whole of history after man's fall into sin as unifying under the provisions of the covenant of grace. Beginning with the first promise to Adam in sin and continuing throughout history to the consummation of the ages, God orders all things in view of His singular purpose of redeeming a people to Himself. And then finally, Ligon Duncan... Well, hold on, real, real quick, look up uh, before you read that Ligon Duncan quote. Here's a, here's a big problem with, with this. Um, there are a few problems, but a really big glaring problem is this. If all of the covenants of the Old Testament, Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, etc., are just different subsets of the covenant of grace you got to do something with Exodus 20 and following where God gives the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. Because if you've read the Bible, you'll know law and grace are not the same thing, are they? So God's giving of the law is grace? There's a big problem there, isn't there? Or there should be. Okay, now let's read how Ligon Duncan uh, handles that. He says, While Reformed theologians acknowledge that there are aspects of the covenant of Moses or the covenant of law, which reflect some of the language and ideas of the covenant of works, nevertheless, the covenant of law, the covenant of Moses, or you could say the Mosaic economy, it's squarely within the stream of the covenant of grace. It is not an alternate option to the covenant of works given to us by God in the Old Testament. It is part of the covenant of grace." So now, at least from a Presbyterian perspective, you have to make the law of Moses grace. Have you read Galatians lately? Uh, Romans? Law and grace are very, very different. So that has some pretty big ramifications about how you read your Bible. Uh, But it's all because of the system. This is how the system is set up to function. Okay? Thoughts or questions on those three covenants or particularly the covenant of grace? Yeah, if you were a Jew living a few hundred years before Christ and you were under the law, dying under the law, you were still under the covenant of grace from their perspective. I don't really know. Yeah. 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 That's a hard one to explain, right? I mean, what kind of verbiage could you employ there to make that make sense? I don't know. Jim. Yeah, so the yeah, covenant of grace, if you look at that Westminster quote again on uh, the bottom, well, middle of page 6, that this second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, you're not going to find a Presbyterian saying, so He gave them the law so they would earn their salvation and that's grace. That's not the argument they're making. But they still say that that law that was given to them to live under, to be bound by, that that was grace. That wasn't the means of salvation. They wouldn't be heretical like that, but they would say that was what they were bound to that law, and that was grace. Yeah, 
uh, or by the law, which, you know, they would say, yeah, well, no one was saved by works of the law. They would readily affirm that. But they would say, um, being under the works of the law was grace still, somehow, even though it wasn't about salvation. I mean, the law was never given for salvation, right? So, so that's kind of out of the question. But we, we recognize that life under the law was not life under the Spirit in the grace of the gospel. And, but they would say, no, it, it was. Yeah, they were privileged to know God through the law. They were privileged to have His holy commands, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, that's true. But that doesn't make it grace. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, Paul would readily affirm, what is the advantage of the Jew? Great in every respect. He have the, they have the oracles of God. But then he's very quick there in Romans to say, that's not grace. You, they, you die to the law, you can be joined to another. The God of grace, the Savior Jesus Christ. Other thoughts or questions on that? Okay, good. Well, let's go to the next page because then we can start getting into our Bible. See, this is the problem with talking about the covenants of covenant theology. You can't go in the Bible to read about them because they're not there. That's the, that's the big problem. So let's start getting into this other stuff. And I just want to give a sweeping overview of some of these things. And then we will, um, we will go from there. Let's have someone grab Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Who can get that for us? Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Thank you, Mandy. And then uh, someone grab Ephesians 3, yeah, we'll just go 3, 4 to 7. You want to get that, Andy? Yeah, I got it. Okay. And uh, let's have someone get John 10, 11. Who can get that one for us? Ellie. And then someone get... 1 Timothy 4.10, who's got that one? Mike. And then the last one, 2 Peter 2.1. Melissa, thank you, with your modest index finger holding up. Okay, so um, let's uh, go ahead and grab those, and we're just going to get to those progressively here as we go through these issues. We're talking about the three issues at the top of this part of the table, Israel, the church, and bum, 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 limited atonement. So Israel, the definition or the covenant theology view of Israel goes something like this. Uh, For many, ethnic or national Israel no longer has a role in God's program. Rather, Israel is to be understood as the people of God in all ages. In this sense, Israel has existed since Adam and continues to exist today. Now, that's a very different view of Israel, isn't it? Uh, Here's the critique summed up. Israel has always had a reference to the literal physical descendants of Jacob consisting of 12 tribes. Gentile believers are sons of Abraham by faith, but they are never called the offspring of Jacob as Israel is. And that's a very important distinction. So what you'll have are uh, sometimes when you get into theological conversations with covenant theologians is they'll say, look, We are Israel. We're the people of God. That's all Israel means, is the people of God. And so they would go to a passage like Galatians 3 to make their point. Would someone read Galatians 3, 6 to 9? Was that you, Mandy? Okay, go ahead.
So they go there and they say, look, we're children of Abraham. We're Israel. Well, the problem with that, you know who else is a child of Abraham? Ishmael. You know who else is a child of Abraham? Esau, right? Grandson, but you get the idea. Okay. They're not Israel, are they? Ishmael's not Israel. Esau is Edom. Jacob is the one who became Israel. And so Israel is Jacob's new name and has reference to the nation that came from Jacob, his 12 sons becoming the 12 tribes. That's what Israel is. Uh, A couple of places here I've referenced for the Old Testament where we see the offspring of Jacob mentioned explicitly. One is Isaiah 65, 9 that says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Here God is giving a prophecy of the future in the future restoration of the earth, the future beautiful uh, consummation of all things where God has explicit rule over the face of the earth. And he says the offspring of Jacob are going to be possessors of the mountains of God. If you're a covenant theologian, you go into that and you say, that's, that's you and me. That's the church. And I say, wait a second. The Bible never ever says that the church is the offspring of Jacob. The Bible never says that the church is Israel. Israel has a meaning. And you get the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 46, verse 27, where God said through that prophet, "'Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity.'" Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. A a prophecy about the future restoration of Israel, well, they will be in peace and safety in their land, and it's talking about the offspring of Jacob. Because of our hermeneutic, we don't say, well, these words can be changed. Because of our hermeneutic, we go back and we say, well, offspring of Jacob means offspring of Jacob. He's talking about Israel. He's not talking about me. Okay? So that, that's a very big difference is how we view Israel throughout the New Testament, or throughout the Old and New Testament, throughout the Bible. Before uh, I ask for questions, I want to also look at the church, because these go together. Their definition, their view of the church is this, there is no meaningful distinction between Israel and the church. Israel was the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. Since God will not bring national Israel back into focus as its own entity, the church is to be understood as the culmination of Old Testament prophecies about blessings for Israel. Our critique of that is this. The church is a mystery, meaning it was not disclosed in ages past. As a new work of God, the church is distinct from national Israel and God's program not replacing Israel or usurping the promises God made to Jacob's descendants. Yet, the church is made to participate in the new covenant. So let's look at uh, Ephesians 3, 4 to 7. You got that, Andy? Okay, go ahead. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Right. You see here how Paul is talking about the church as a new thing? Okay. Some of you are. <laughs> yeah, mystery. He says something that hasn't been revealed in ages past, but it has now been revealed. If you um, look back up, if you're there, you can look back up to chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that God has made one new man. He's brought together Jew and Gentile to make one new man. There's that word. This is a new work of God, the church is. So Israel is not the church of the Old Testament. That's to ignore this reality that the church is new. The church is a new thing that God has done to bring Jew and Gentile together, abolishing the enmity that stood between them, which was the law, to bring them together as one new man in Christ. That's a mystery. And so we can't say that, well, the church has always existed and that's basically another name for Israel. That's just not how Paul talks about this at all. But again, in that system, that's the way you have to look at it. Thoughts or questions on Israel and the church? Um, well, the whole system basically has its origins during the ref time of the Reformation. Zwingli had a lot to do with it, okay? Now, it does go back to that hermeneutic like we were talking about before with Origen and Augustine, but covenant theology as a system, particularly as we're talking about Israel and the church, that was Reformation-era guys like Zwingli. Even the next generation after that was like second generation Reformation. Yeah. And we just kept reforming, and they stopped. So that's all. They got off the bus. Okay, limited atonement. Let's cover that one quickly. <laughs> no one's ever said that before. Uh, from the covenant theology perspective. Now, this is important, so put your thinking caps on as you've just learned about the covenant of redemption. You just learned about this. Okay, now apply it here. As an outflow of the covenant of redemption, the Son only died for those whom the Father gave Him in eternity past. Some also teach that Christ's atonement for the elect began with His life, fulfilling the covenant of works in their stead by earning them righteousness with law-keeping. Wow, there's a lot to chew on there, isn't there? Okay, the critique... It is possible that Christ's atonement only had the sins of the elect in view. However, there are reasons to believe His atonement incorporated more purposes than only accomplishing the redemption of the elect. A lot of cross-references there you can check out. Tyler gave a great overview of this in a sermon on Sunday, and like Tyler, I side with that latter view. There are reasons to believe the atonement extended beyond simply atoning for the sins of the elect. But let's look at a couple of verses that will bring this to light, uh, starting with John 10. I think you had that one, Ellie, didn't you? Okay, so think about this from the covenant theology perspective of Christ only died for the sins of the elect. John 10, 11. All right, so there it is. What's Jesus going to do when He dies? He's laying down his life for the sheep. Close the books. Next, next subject. 
Well, if that's the only verse we had on the subject, then yeah, we could, we could say that. And I listed some other verses there too. Tyler mentioned one or two of these, at least on Sunday. Um, you could check those out. They all kind of have the same idea. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't just talk about it from that perspective. The Bible talks about the atonement of Christ in other ways too. So 1 Timothy 4.10, was that you, Mike? Okay, what does that one say? Right, I remember Tyler mentioning this one on Sunday. Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Because what, if that last little part wasn't in there, if it just said Christ is the Savior of all men, the limited atonement view would say, yeah, He's the Savior of all the men who believe. But Paul said He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Well, now we have like believers as a subset of the bigger group here. Now, that's pretty interesting. And then 2 Peter 2.1, Melissa? But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will, speak, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There are false teachers who are going to be destroyed, false teachers in the church bringing upon themselves swift destruction. But they were bought by the Master. <laughs> What, a, what an interesting phrase. So they will be destroyed, but they're denying the master who bought them. That's a tough verse if you have the limited atonement view, because it's saying something about what God has done on their behalf in purchasing them, and yet they're rejecting that, and they're going to be destroyed. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not saying these are people who once believed and were regenerated and now they're going to be destroyed. That's not what it's saying. No. They didn't talk about them being true teachers at one point and then becoming false teachers or anything like that. No. Okay, other thoughts or questions on this limited atonement business? Eternal sure. security. Yeah, yeah, right. And you've got open invitations to the world to believe, right? Whosoever. And as Tyler talked about again on Sunday, uh, the reason why we can have that legitimate offer and go out to whosoever is because Jesus died for all. That's what makes that offer legitimate. So, yeah. Good. Okay. I'm going to skip over the law stuff because we're going to talk about that next week. Page three, you have eschatology. So here's where the end time stuff is. And this can obviously get a little complicated. Uh, you have different covenant theology views of things like the Great Tribulation and the Millennium. We're going to cover this in a few weeks, so maybe I won't go into detail of that now, other than to say here's this information you would do well to check it out before we actually get to that. So have, I don't know, put this on the coffee table, put it by the toilet, wherever you'll read it, and check it out. Uh, I will point out this, though, at the bottom, Satan's status, the bottom of page three. Here's something to consider. For the amillennialist and the postmillennialist, Satan is currently bound and sealed in the bottomless pit. However, he is still very active in the world. 
He is only unable to prevent the church from growing, implying that he was able to do so before this binding. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a thing that's going on in people's theology. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, the critique there, of course, is in Revelation 20, where it describes the binding of Satan, this is describing Satan being prevented from doing anything whatsoever. Yet, Satan is described as being active against the church in the New Testament, including in the book of Revelation itself. So, stop right there. What, what, what that's saying is um, Satan isn't bound yet, because Revelation 20 describes a scenario where he's unable to do anything whatsoever, but we see that he is active. So, that must mean he's not bound yet. Additionally, Satan has never been able to stop the work of God as he has always had a remnant. And this is something I find interesting with these guys who say that Israel is the church of the Old Testament. They say, now that Christ has come, Satan is now bound, beginning with either Christ's resurrection or ascension or 70 AD, whatever view people take on that. Satan is now bound, which means he cannot prevent the church from growing. But it's like, wait a second, was he able to do that in the Old Testament, do you think? Like, I just don't understand the logic there. Like, he used to be able to stop the nations from believing. But now he's unable to do that. Like, well, what about Rahab? You know, what about these different examples that we have of even non-Israelites coming to know the Lord? Ruth, others. Um, I, I just don't really get the logic there uh, on that in any way. All right. Um, but again, we'll come back to that. So let's go to page four, and this is where we'll end tonight. I tried to give you a helpful idea of where people are on this stuff. Okay, if if they're in the dispensational premillennial column here, that means they're in, in alignment essentially with what we teach at this church. The other three columns are reflections of covenant theology. These are outflows of covenant theology. They are different with their end times views, but they're all covenant theologians to one degree or another. Okay? And again, this will all get defined in greater detail in the weeks to come, but uh, figured this would be helpful for you to process who's who in this big wide world of Christian theology. Any disappointments on there? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Uh-huh, sure. I do too. Oh, for sure. For sure. Great brothers in the Lord. God has used them powerfully. No doubt about that. That was, this was a helpful activity for me to do a little bit of research and categorize these guys a bit. Um, in my head, I knew where a lot of them were, but not with this kind of detail. Okay, we got a few minutes. We can check that out. Go back one page to three. And um, <clears throat> here's where there's a definition of historic premill. Historic premillennialists believe that before the return of Christ, Israel will be saved. Okay, if we stop right there, hey, we're on the same page. <laughs> it would be great to stop there, but we can't. 
And after they're saved, they will be grafted into the church. Jesus will return and reign for a literal thousand-year period. Good. The church will then experience the blessings for Israel promised in the Old Testament. Okay. So it, it basically comes back to the church and Israel business. So we don't believe that uh, the Israel, when they get saved, they're just going to be grafted into the church and then go into the future as members of the church, and that's it. We believe there's a place for national Israel in God's program as an entity uh, going forward. We know that there will be nations in the new earth even. There will be nations in the millennial reign of Christ. One of those nations is going to be Israel, and they're going to have a particular specific function in that millennium uh, as Christ is reigning. They're going to have a particular role. There are all these promises that are made to them that, that are going to take place. And so we can just jump over to the critique side of it, uh, which basically just articulates our view. After the Great Tribulation, Jesus will return with His church to establish a literal thousand-year reign on the face of the earth. As revealed through the Old Testament prophets, this will be the kingdom promised to David, resulting in blessings for the world and a specific function for Israel who will be restored in their land. So they obviously, the historic premillennialist is the closest to our position. And being premillennial is obviously a great commonality that we have. But uh, the role of Israel going forward is the difference there. Correct. And that, yeah, they would also be post-trib. Um, dispensationalists are the only uh, of those four columns who, that believe that the church will be raptured before the Great Tribulation. Okay. Dispensationalists are the only ones of the four that are those four columns on page four uh, that believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. The others will believe in uh, a post-tribulational rapture, which would be going to the clouds and turning around and coming right back down. It, they, the way they explain it is like we're going out to meet a royal who's coming into the city to bring him into the city, to come into the city with him. So we go up and come back down. We don't go up and do the Bema Seat Judgment thing, like I was just talking about a couple or a week and a half ago, and up there for seven years. None of that. It's to boop, come back down. Broken elevator is what I call that one. Yeah, I was just reading optimistic autolinealists. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Char? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Israelites who believe now are part of that one new man, the church. Yep. Good. Other thoughts or questions? I can do one or two more. Oh, the John Owen syllogism of... If Christ died for all the sins, and unbelief is a sin. That one? No, Christ oh. died for, for all the sins of the world. Then how can you justly judge and judge those sins again for the individual who rejects Christ? I see, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's this... Uh, there are actually a couple of different arguments to address there, but 
uh, Tyler's talking about this, this argument, a logical argument, saying if all the wrath of God was poured out on sin when Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, how could it be then when an unbeliever dies and meets God in judgment that that person's judged again because wasn't all of his wrath poured out on the cross? All right, so um, this is, first of all, a logical argument. It's not a biblical argument. It's a logical argument. And human logic is always subject to being faulty, right? We have to make that disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, however, I would answer that logic with some logic of my own in saying, think of someone who um, is one of the elect, someone whom God has chosen for salvation. From the moment that person is conceived in the womb until that person believes and is born again, is that person guilty in sin? Is that person judged already because that person does not believe in Jesus? Or is that person sin-free? I would say, we better say that person is guilty. That's how I'm going to preach that person. I'm going to open the Bible and say, dude, uh, you're headed for judgment here. Well, big warning sign. Uh, God is going to judge you. The lake of fire is your destination. You are hell-bound right now. But when that person believes that person becomes innocent because of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so there's this difference between what happened at the cross and when that is applied to the believer. There's a difference between the two. And what some Reformed theologians, covenant theologians, what they'll do that gets me a little uncomfortable is they will start applying the atonement to the account of the elect before any of them actually even believe in Christ. I've actually had a covenant theologian tell me, a reformed guy tell me, that he's not comfortable with that line in that song, All I Have is Christ, uh, uh, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. That line, well, we, we weren't hellbound, we were elect of God. Really? That's a problem, okay? So, you can have... The wrath of God being poured out on the cross, and yet there's the reality that it hasn't been applied to every believer yet. And there's the reality, there are, of course, many, many, many people, the majority of people in human history that are going to reject that offer or who are just not going to have it applied to their account. So you have to separate the event of Jesus dying for sin and the personal application through faith. Okay. And once you marinate on that and dwell on that, it's like, okay, well, this is God's business about the whole double, double jeopardy stuff, but I, I, just had, I know I have to distinguish between him dying and his death being applied to me. Okay. okay, well, wasn't that fun? I love talking theology. Next week, we will look specifically about, at Calvinism and the covenant theology view of the law. Those are the two things we're going to cover next week. All right, let me pray, and then... Uh, I think I have an announcement or two. Do I? You, you were looking like you had an announcement. I have one announcement. Okay. I'll pray and then we'll go from there. Lord, again, we thank you for today and for this time together. Help us to have a, a truly uh, biblical theology that we would continually submit ourselves to what you have said in your word and that our theology would be shaped by your word. Help us to have that submissive, humble spirit about this and that it would have a real-life impact in drawing us nearer to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.